So, uh, apologetics uh, in 3D, as the title says, and we'll, we'll get to, to the why in 3D uh, bit later. Um, it's a terrible word that we've been saddled with, apologetics, because of course in English this sounds like uh, apologising. Uh, this is obviously the theological subject that's all about uh, how to tell people you're terribly sorry about being a Christian <laughs> and so on. Uh, and uh, again, as we'll see, it, it, it doesn't mean that. But I, I want to kind of put this in a context this afternoon of thinking quite sort of broadly, holistically about apologetics. It has this reputation of being very uh, cerebral, uh, very rationally focused. And I want to kind of say, although apologetics is cerebral and has a rational focus, there is more to it than that. Uh, I think it should be uh, stretching uh, uh, and cerebral, but at an appropriate level for each of us. Uh, and that will be different uh, for different uh, people. Uh, and there is uh, more to it uh, than that sort of reputation. And again, as, as we were saying, put it in the context of, of personal discipleship uh, and uh, linking it with evangelism uh, and discipleship and, and so on. Uh, so let me give you a, a, a stab, a, a sort of broader way of thinking about apologetics here. I'm going to uh, put forward a vision of apologetics where it's, uh, it's about enabling people to be persuaded that uh, a Christian, a Christ-centred spirituality is a beautiful, good and reasonable commitment to make in life. A uh, Christ-centred spirituality is a beautiful, good and reasonable, true uh, belief or commitment. Uh, particularly famous uh, Bible verse in this context is 1 Peter 3.15, where we, we derive the, the word apologetics from. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15, um, Peter talking to, to all Christians in general, uh, says always be prepared to give an answer. Uh, and the word translated in English here, the answer in the Greek is apologia. Uh, literally a word back, always be ready to give a word back, uh, 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 kind of it would be used for example of what your defence lawyer would do for you in court, when your defence lawyer would stand up and give your defence speech, uh, so always be ready to de defend yourself by uh, a response, a reasonable rational response. Uh, give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Obviously, hope is Christian in Christ. But do this with gentleness and respect. So here in this very key verse about apologetics, there is obviously something about rationality, but there's, it's in the context of sort of evangelising, of getting on with people who are sort of saying... What on earth are you following that crucified dude for? Why don't you eat meat sacrificed to idols? That's really weird, man. Or, you know, in that cultural situation of that time, we will get different uh, kind of responses from people in our culture. Um, and also is talking about doing it with gentleness and respect. There's something here about values that flow from our relationship with Christ as we relate to other people uh, as well. Uh, feel free to, to chip in with 
questions as we go through and so on. And I will deliberately pause on occasion as well to, to allow that. Uh, just a quote from Kevin Kinghorn and Jerry L. Walls. I've been reading a, a book of essays on um, the Holy Spirit recently. Um, and in their essay there, uh, they say this. God draws us towards a relationship with him uh, in which we find our ultimate fulfillment. However, the distinction uh, is to be drawn between uh, belief and a relational commitment that's marked by faith. Okay. No problem. So we're talking about uh, belief and relational commitment. Faith. The latter is obviously the final aim of the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life. Um, belief is useful in, in as much as it contributes to a, a relational commitment, <laughs> as it were. So this cognitive element of, of belief may play an essential role in this relational dynamic, but the goal of the apologist, like the Holy Spirit in, in this context, is not mere belief. We're not trying to get people to change their opinion about how they would answer a question in the pub quiz when we're doing evangelism or apologetics. Yeah? It's obviously much uh, deeper and more significant than this. Uh, it's rather a relationship marked by faith. So biblical apologetics is a holistic, whole person kind of enterprise. Um, Francis Schaeffer, famous uh, evangelist as a cultural commentator of the last century uh, I think sums it up very nicely in this little quote from his book The God Who Was There it says the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument or a discussion although it may involve trying to do that <laughs> uh, but that the people with whom we're in contact may become Christians and then live under the lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life so there's no dichotomy between uh, apologetics and evangelism and discipleship and or rationality and the rest of life. It's about bundling these things uh, all together. Or a, a more uh, recent uh, writer, Alistair McGrath, uh, puts things this way. He says, we can't allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he does not also guide our thinking. The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in faith. No, he's not saying he's more important. <laughs> it's, it's an important part of the process. Uh, above all, we must expand our vision of the Christian gospel. And uh, it's very much uh, talking along, I think, the same lines as someone like N.T. Wright recently has written a lot about how the church has sometimes got a very narrow vision of what we mean by the gospel. It is, well, where do I sign on the line to get the, you know, the eternal fire insurance? You know, sign me up. The gospel is, Jesus died for my sins, so if I trust in him, I can go to heaven when I die. And that's the gospel. And you say, mm, not really. <laughs> uh, We've got to expand our vision of the gospel system, McGrath. Apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God. Apologetics engages not only the mind, but also the heart. And we impoverish the gospel, the good news, if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties. 
we're called upon to demonstrate and to embody the truth and beauty and goodness of faith. The, putting it in the context of thinking of the gospel of something, you know, Jesus' main message in the gospels, the good news, is the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom is amongst you. Come into the kingdom. Mm. Uh, bring the life, you know, I am the way and the truth and the life mm. of the kingdom of God within you. Mm. Uh, you are bringing that kingdom life to earth in you and this community that I'm founding here and now which will begin now and yes will ultimately eternally flourish in the new heavens and the new earth <laughs> in which you know all the great things about life here is taken up to the glory of God but this vision of the gospel is bigger than oh how do I avoid you know going to the bad place yeah so there's no, no again, dichotomy between apologetics and evangelism. So Doug Groothouse, an American philosopher, says the, the artificial separation of evangelism from apologetics has got to end. And he points to the fact that the Apostle Paul serves as a model for us. The book of Acts is, you could look at it as a sort of early church manual on uh, apologetics or persuasive evangelism. Paul serves as a model. He both proclaimed and defended the gospel uh, in Acts. Jesus rationally defended his views as well as proclaiming them. Uh, particularly, there's a fantastic section of Mark's gospel in which Jesus is in dialogue with the Pharisees and they're trying to entrap him and ensnare him so they can go, ha ha, see, ha ha. And they don't manage it because Jesus outthinks them at every step. And that's there for a reason. Uh, nor is it a dichotomy between apologetics and spiritual warfare. So when you when I talk about spiritual warfare, what may come to mind is sort of very charismatic, let's pray for the exorcism of the demons kind of stuff. And I'm not decrying <coughs> that, but pay attention to what Paul in 2 Corinthians says on the theme of spiritual warfare. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, I think I've put in brackets there, intellectual, what sort of strongholds is he talking about? And very sort of the charismatic end of the church will talk about the, you know, the, the spiritual atmosphere, the spiritual strongholds that we, we pray against. But then Paul says uh, that we demolish strongholds, we demolish arguments. The, the parallelism, the typical Hebrew parallelism uh, there is talking on, on the same topic, I think. We demolish strongholds, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, against knowing God. And we take captive every thought to make it obey Christ. So here Paul's description of spiritual warfare is very much about how we think and how we argue against the world in that uh, sense of the Pauline use of the world as the, the structures and ways of thinking that are anti-God and anti-Christ. Uh, it's 
it's both rational and relational, not one or the other. Love this quote from Nicola Veal. Uh, I think this is, it puts it powerfully. She says, uh, people in relationships need to inquire, as you were saying then, learn, build on what they know about each other. Relationships characterised by thoughtlessness are going nowhere. We cannot trust others without testing their trustworthiness. We should build relationships in a rational way. And we should use rationality in a relational way. The Christian faith is about a relationship with God, and like any other relationship, this requires thought. Um, it is not unspiritual to think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, finally, one sort of bit of myth-busting. Myth <coughs> Apologetics does work. Persuasive evangelism does work. The old canon, you know, well, you can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. Well, no, in as much as if someone is really determined that they're going to choose that they don't want to put their faith in Christ, an argument isn't going to force them to do that. Um, you know, as the phrase goes, you can need a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Uh, but I think, to use a sort of strained analogy, the arguments can certainly make the horse recognise that it's really thirsty. <laughs> and there is a high price to be paid by not drinking. <laughs> uh, and so on. Um, I, just a quote from, an, this is a, a few years ago, a, a student from Venezuela, of all places, wrote to me. And I was like, well... People have been reading my stuff in Venezuela. Uh, as a graduate student of philosophy, I'm an eager reader of your books and online articles, which have been instrumental in my rejection of agnosticism and naturalism and have contributed strongly to making me a newborn Christian. Okay. Now, no, she didn't say, your apologetics have made me become a Christian. <laughs> but apologetics and rational argument and so on does, for many people at least, play a, a key role in their process of conversion and, as I'm arguing, should play a, a, an appropriate level role for each of us in our, in our design. If you remind me back again for this point, um, yeah. a case in point here was our recent confirmation service. One of the testimonies given was a guy who's a physics student here, mm -hmm. um, who, who came forward and, and said, I didn't believe it and I had these reasons as to why I didn't believe it and when I wrestled with those reasons mm. and actually the answers I the answers I got I felt comfortable with and so I thought actually I can believe in this God yeah yeah, yeah. right so I, I started out with a little summary of how I'm addressing apologetics here's it a little bit more formally that, that that's the summary. Here's it a little bit more formally that's going to give me those 3D categories that we can now work through because I like working through categories as a philosopher. Uh, so I think of apologetics as, as the, the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality through the responsible use of rhetoric as being objectively beautiful, good and true or reasonable. And that's going to give us our little 3 by 3 matrix and let me address well, what am I talking about when I'm talking about spirituality and Christian spirituality? Uh, what am I talking about when I'm talking about 
the responsible use of rhetoric, which it's probably a term if you have heard it that has a bad association, uh, and these categories of, of beauty and goodness and, and, and truth, rationality, yeah? So, <coughs> spirituality is a word that gets banded about. I was watching on Sunday morning, uh, nursing my, my poorly shoulder at home, nothing much to do apart from watch TV. This entire programme came on TV about, like, walking and spirituality. Like an hour programme of, of going to the Lake District and walking in the footsteps of Wordsworth, uh, the poet, and how... Uh, people find a sort of sense of spirituality and connection and communion with nature uh, and perhaps a sense of God or, well, if not God, whatever works for you, but as long as you're nice to other people and looking at flowers might help do that kind of somehow, like meditating or like just be aware that you're in the moment, you know. Uh, it was sort of pretty insipid stuff. But someone had produced this whole hour of TV about walking in nature and how that was like related to spirituality. And that was like the hook for the programme. So we live in a culture that is really interested in spirituality, uh, but doesn't have a very clear idea of what the heck that is. Um, well, here's a clear idea of what the heck that is. Uh, that is a general idea that different people will cash out in slightly different ways depending on what kind of spirituality they have. So if you think of a spirituality basically as a way of life, a, a way of relating to reality, it aims to be to be virtuous, to be good for you, good for society, <coughs> so it aims to be integrative, that it, it aims to pull the different elements of your personhood together coherently. Um, and it does that via this uh, bringing into, into combination, uh, into structure together, your worldview, your way of thinking, your assumptions about reality, if you like, uh, your attitudes of your heart. So uh, we often talk about a heart in terms of how we feel about things in this culture, whereas you notice in the Bible, the heart is the centre of you when you're, you choose or your will with your, your heart. Um, but attitudes, uh, here I would include, you know, what you commit yourself to, for example. And then the actions that flow out of that. So we, we have a nice little alliteration of assumptions, attitudes, uh, actions, or uh, another way of alliterating it. Spirituality is the combination of your head and your heart and your hands. And different people will put slightly different, perhaps overlapping, content into the head, heart and hands categories there. Uh, but basically everyone has a spirituality. It's just that a, a Muslim spirituality is different from a Buddhist spirituality, different from a Christian spirituality, different from an atheist spirituality. Although there will be overlaps, like this TV programme was saying, you know, all religions basically teach you, you know, you've got to be nice to other people, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, yeah, they do basically. <laughs> uh, 
uh, don't they? Uh, slightly different ways for different reasons and uh, advocate different paths of achieving that and so on. So there are, there are differences, they're not all the same thing, but there are similarities and so on. Uh, a spirituality becomes a sort of, a way, as I say, a way of life, a way of relating to everything. Uh, it's the centre of how you relate to reality, to yourself, to the world around you, to uh, your family, your friends, your God, if you think there is one, uh, and so on. And it becomes a sort of self-reinforcing loop, in a sense, uh, because... I believe that there is a God because I have a positive reaction to that rather than a negative one. I might deign to take part in the practice of praying to God occasionally because I think that, well, that might be a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, but because I engage in the practice of praying, if that becomes habitual in my life, I might well find that that starts reinforcing my belief in God because when I engage in prayer I might get a sort of religious experience that reinforces my belief that there is a God and he's about his nature so my attitudes towards him might firm up which might make me even more committed to praying and so on uh, so when people really commit to a spirituality it can become something that's very hard to break them out of yeah. Now, whether or not you know they should be broken out of it, I would say depends on whether or not the spirituality is like true and good and beautiful. We'll, we'll get there. Um, but this is why it is difficult to evangelise people because again, we're not just asking them to. Oh, could you change your opinion about how to answer the pub quiz? What we're really asking people, we're going to them and saying, have you ever thought about? changing the entire way you think about relating and you feel about relating and you choose about relating to everything would you like to, to, to change your relationship to your boyfriend your family, your mother your country, your <coughs> community, your money your uh, and that is a big ask uh, and to motivate someone to, to change from a non-Christian spirituality and to adopt a Christian spirituality, therefore often takes quite a long time and a lot of discussions and a lot of relationship and a lot of love and a lot of arguing and a lot of stuff. Yeah? Now, this concept of spirituality is not something I've just plucked out of the air as something unique to me. I didn't get here first. Here is Jesus answering the uh, lawyer's question to what's the greatest commandment. Uh, put slightly different ways in the different Gospels, all of which are referring back to a verse in Deuteronomy anyway. He says that <coughs> the most important commandment is to love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Head, heart, hands. Christian spirituality means loving God with all of your head, heart, hands and loving your neighbour with all head, heart, hands in Christ, through Christ. I can do all things. <laughs> um, so think of, this is uh, Acts 2, 
37, where Peter has just finished doing the first persuasive evangelistic sermon uh, after Pentecost. Uh, and uh, Luke says, when the people heard this, and that's not just, oh yeah, they heard what he said, but they had, they had taken on board the claims, they had believed the truth claims about Jesus and the resurrection and so on that Pete's just been talking about. They were cut to the heart, and they had an attitudinal response, and it happened to be a positive one. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And the response, they say, head, hearts, hands, I'll, uh, I see you making quite a lot of notes. I, I'll very happily email through a PDF of the, the notes that you can circulate later, if you like, so you get the quotes and things. Oh, uh, Colossians 3, 15 to 17, Paul again. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The word of Christ, Logos of Christ, dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, some head stuff. Uh, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it. Uh, so once you get this structure of spirituality in mind, you notice it cropping up all over the place throughout scripture. Because this is just how God has built us as spiritual beings. <laughs> and scripture addresses us as holistic spiritual beings whose doing and feeling and committing and thinking and, and so on are all tied together uh, and meant to be bound, bound together. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, just like when you were just, I was just all throughout, like this, this kind of like words come to mind about my perspective on the apologetics in the past, but also probably other people's. Mm. And, the, you know, the idea of changing your lifestyle for somebody else who's not of a faith background, mm. or maybe, maybe on the fence with it, mm. or may not have some of their lifestyle with Christ and some of their lifestyle within the world. Yeah. The apologetic side can come across quite, if, if us, with all due respect, arrogant in some mm. ways, because you're saying let you need to be really forceful in terms of, you know, change your lifestyle for Christ. How do you, as an apologetic, come across in a different way, which is not Yeah, yeah, that's a, that is an excellent question. Because you're thinking about again, one Peter three fifteen. Do it with gentleness and respect. Not do this with a with a sense of superiority and arrogance. Yeah, it's yeah? not stick to will to be like not stick to it. <laughs> yeah. Is it? yeah. So, one phrase I, I I just found myself using in a conversation in, uh, at a conference the other year talking about apologetics, I suddenly found myself coming out with the phrase, apologetics is a way to love the rationality of your neighbour. Mm. <laughs> and I said, I thought, oh yeah, that is it. that's a good way of putting it, isn't it? That's, that's not about being arrogant and sort of using reason as a sort of big stick, as you say, but as a way of saying, you, as a being I believe made in the image of the greatest possible being God who is you know you're a re you want to be reasonable and rational and have a reasonable rational worldview yeah, and so yeah. on yeah, yeah. Um, and I I passionately think that I've got that for you mm. um, but I'm open to listening to your objections mm. and you know you can try and change my mind mm. but fair's fair I can try and change yours but you know we want to do that for each other out of a sense of we want the best for each other, rather than we want to show I'm right and you're yeah, wrong, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I think this comes back to we'll mention this again, as I say at the end. 
as beautiful and good and true that there's this sense of a, we are all jointly committed to these transcendent values yeah. uh, <coughs> and, and we have this sense of we are all seeking spiritual wholeness mm. uh, and out of a sense of love for you mm. I want you to have spiritual wholeness mm. and I expect you to respect me enough for you to want me to have spiritual wholeness and if we have a disagreement about how we could find that it's not loving for me to just go oh well you know i think i've got the right way for you to have great spiritual fulfillment and eternal life you know etc but you know you've got a different idea so you know you go your way i'll go mine i don't really care yeah that's exactly not Mm. being loving it's like Mm. saying Hey guys, I've just discovered chocolate fudge cake, mm. but I'm going to keep it all to myself because I think it's really nice. But you know, don't want you to have any. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you know, and you're going chocolate fudge cake. That, yeah. that sounds weird. I've never had that before. I, I'm very happy with my toast, thank mm. you. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going. Well, how can I convince you to try this? Yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah. There's like a fine balance between being, not being too direct and forceful and also not being cold with it as well, We're trying to be hot with your faith. Yeah, yeah. Not, and, you know, not, being, not being condescending yeah. and so on, but that, that means I'm, I'm taking your rationality and your search for truth and wholeness and, and coherence and so on seriously. Mm. And... Uh, for some people, maybe that means you're taking it more seriously than they do for themselves, mm. and you're trying to encourage them to take this more seriously. Mm. Uh, that that can be some of the the hardest situations when you're not are not the, the instances when you're kind of in dialogue with someone who thinks, yeah, these are really interesting, significant issues, and we've got a disagreement. Let's go down the pub and have a chat about it. But the the apathetic, yeah. the well, that I'm glad I'm glad that works for you. Mm. You know, I, I like my yoga. Bye. Mm. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really good question. So, this will, of course, map onto 1 Peter 3 15, because the same categories, etc., etc., etc. I can keep going with lots of Bible verses, but I'll leave that as an exercise for you. Um, rhetoric. Um, oh, that's just political rhetoric, we would say these days. It has a bad, bad name. But um, in the classical world, that's not how it's thought of. So let me take you to a little bit of classical philosophy and then we'll do a bit of Bible. Uh, this is, um, whether or not you looked at anything like this, this is meant to be Aristotle, 4th uh, century BC, uh, Greek philosopher. He defines rhetoric this way. He says it's the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter admits. And then he would go on to say, and to help communicate that to other people so that they can recognize what is persuasive about something. So advertising has a, has a bad name because, uh, let's put it crassly, uh, think of like car adverts in the 1970s. What you do, you want to sell your car. You get your car, you put a leggy blonde in a bikini on the bonnet of the car, and that sells the car. 
Now that's that's bad and crass advertising because you're not saying anything about the car <laughs> in order to sell the car. Yeah. Um, adverts that do talk about the car, it's a little harder perhaps to make them interesting to the target audience. But it's more honest advertising to say, you know, buy the new whatever, 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 because it's got the longest range without having to recharge the batteries. Uh, and it's like, therefore, it's greener than the other options. And if you care about the planet, then this is the car for you. Or something like that. At least you're, you're trying to point out something that's true about the car. If it is true, <laughs> if you do it, you know, honesty, etc. Um, and so that's the difference between like, you know, crass bad advertising and, and good advertising. So by good rhetoric here, we mean like good advertising, uh, helping people to recognize what really is attractive about something so that they become attracted to it. Mm -hmm. uh, so Aristotle, in a very famous passage, he talks about the three kind of main elements of rhetoric which he calls ethos and pathos and logos. Logos will be fairly familiar to us from New Testament usage. John 1.1 is meaning was the word, the logos. <coughs> it says, of the modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. The first kind, this is ethos, depends on the personal character of the speaker. So there's obviously like a, a link here with goodness the character of the speaker so like do i come across like a used car salesman stereotypically speaking or a tv evangelist come forward put your hand on the screen here phone in with your credit card number and the lord will bless you you know give me money so that i can have my private jet yeah. and you'll you know <laughs> you'll get the miracles kind of yeah this is crass. Mm. Uh, or do I come across as someone like, yeah, they, they seem to like know what they're talking about and they're being, you know, trustworthy and not overbearing, yeah. appropriately humble, interested in me, etc., etc., like you're talking about. So the character, the ethos of the speaker. Uh, the second pathos is putting the audience into a certain frame of mind. What he's talking about here is getting an audience to, f to feel a certain way about something. To be attracted towards the beauty of something. Uh, pathos. Uh, we were talking about ethos of a company. Uh, pathos. I think the closest here we have, like Tchaikovsky read a famous symphony called the Pathetic mm. Symphony. That's not pathetic. Symphony. I mean, why would anyone want to write a pathetic symphony? Like, you know, oh, that symphony, that's really pathetic, Tchaikovsky. Why did you bother? No, it, it means a, it was music designed to really pull on your heartstrings. Uh, to, to affect your, your mood. Uh, and then this is the third logos on the proof provided by the words of the speech itself. This is obviously going to be relating to truth, argumentation and so on um, and basically these things shouldn't come apart but should go together uh, 
harking back to the sort of integrative nature of things we're talking about here. So again, these will map. Uh, so the, the head with logos, the heart with pathos, the, the hands with ethos. You, you judge someone's character by what they do. <laughs> uh, and we'll map again. Uh, so here's Paul, interestingly, in Colossians, giving advice on evangelism. And he mentions the same three categories of rhetoric as Aristotle in the same order that Aristotle mentions them in, which doesn't prove that he'd read Aristotle, but he certainly was educated in the classical thought of the time, <laughs> which would have been influenced by Aristotle, because uh, he was well educated uh, not only in the Jewish thought forms, but also the uh, Greco-Roman ones. So Paul in Colossians 4, 5 to 6 says, When you're with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. Ethos. Hold their interest when you speak the message. Pathos. Be engaging. Uh, Use good IT. Um, (laughs) Choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to reply or respond to anyone who asks questions. And he's sounding almost identical to Peter there. Be ready to give answers to those who ask questions. Uh, So again, it will map back to 1 Peter 3.15 and so on. (coughs) Anything on that for the last little push to the end here for this section? I definitely, um, like last night, I actually went out my... um, my housemates for my Lent thing. Mm. As part of my giving, I like went bowling with them and paid for them to go bowling with me. Mm. It was like three or four of them. But I was like on the condition like, I could talk about faith for five minutes. <laughs> and like, yeah, sure. And so I had like the ethos part and the pathos part, but like, the logos part was yeah. like I was like I wasn't expecting like answers back and like that part about being prepared for answers. Yeah. I was like, whoa, sort of thing. And so yeah. yeah. I think investing in that logos part, I think, is something that is deficient in my life. Yeah, yeah. The, the ethos and the pathos often lays it, earns you the right to engage in the logos part, yeah. as it were. Mm. And saying, if you just try and go straight for the logos without earning that yeah, right sure. in terms of relationship, mm. uh, all without focusing on, well, why should this matter to you in terms of this? Yeah. You know, if it were true, would you find it attractive? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could answer yeah. the personal questions, which yeah. were like, asking questions about my life. But when it came to like certain things in yeah. scripture and stuff, I was like, yeah. I obviously I did the classic. Let me go away and have a think about it. Yeah. Sort of thing. And that's great. And that's good. That's good ethos to, to mm. do that, particularly if you actually do do that and follow up on it. Yeah. And as Ben was saying, that's that. You can see it's just as much important for your own discipleship yeah. and spirituality and development as for your evangelism with your friends as, as well. Um, and that they see you engaging in that national process is good ethos because they start thinking, hey, actually, you know, I know some Christians and when I've made objections or asked them questions about their faith, even if they haven't like had an answer for me, that mm. I've noticed he's gone away and he's, he's read a book. Mm. He, he seemed to be actually committed to thinking Maybe. about things, making an effort mm. for me, and, and so on, and thinking and being rational. And 
I keep, you know, reading these articles by new atheists and whatever that say that the problem with these religious people is they don't think. But I know someone they do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So you you undermine these called sort of cultural memes about oh Christians are just away with the fairies and having faith and stuff. And, yeah. 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 Remember the one thing that I would my observation of really bad at I feel is is an acceptance when we don't know something mm. and to be able to come forward and say either I'm not very good at this or I don't yeah. know this but that is under using <coughs> the, the wealth and experience mm. that we have in this church of um, people like Peter or mm. people like, like David mm. who are you know have a re- are really good at explaining some really tough things, you know. Yeah, so actually true. being able to use that that resource and wealth that we have in this church, um, so you can go away and you can say, "Well, this is one of the questions they ask. I don't know, so help me, and I can help them." Yeah, yeah. And people yeah. are more than happy to do yeah. that in church. Yeah. And we don't. This is part of Christian community uh, as well. Bearing one another's burden. Mm. includes bearing one another's intellectual burdens mm. in a sense we don't all have to become an expert on everything <coughs> but it is nonetheless encouraging uh, for the Christian humanities student to know that you yeah. know there's Keith Fox in church and he's a Christian and he's a professor of biochemistry yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if your friend's asking you questions about you know <laughs> science and faith mm. or whatever mm. he might be a guy that you could go to for some advice yeah. or what ha- what have you? Or Pete's just written a book about the historical Jesus and the new atheists. Or yeah, yeah. you know, um, we each have our thing that we're yeah. studying that we know about or that we're interested yeah. in or whatever. Um, yeah. I think for me, I was quite naive going into last night, thinking like they're only going to ask me really simple questions. But like some of them, like two of them, like knew the Bible quite well. But doesn't it fill you with confidence? They clearly at some point have a thing. Yeah. Whilst they look. Mm. You know, it might look like they don't care or really apathetic. Yeah. I think a lot of people are trying to look apathetic at the mm. moment. Yeah. But really, they could, if they're going to this stage, they've, they've thought about this, sure, yeah. and that's a good place yeah. to meet them at. They're more interested in it than you think, because yeah. they put more effort yeah. into thinking about yeah. it than you think. And I was shocked when I was like, when I was like, can we talk about faith? I was like, it's an like national sort of thing, and they were like, yeah, sure. Yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> What would you say if, um, for people who question whether you've thought about other religions or not? Because I think a lot of the time when I was with people, they've just been like, oh, it's just because you've only heard of this faith or like, you've only learned about this faith, but yeah. what about other faiths and being more? Yeah. Um no difference really I think either you have or you haven't thought about other faiths and if you haven't it's probably a good idea to do a bit of thinking about other faiths. Um, <coughs> The, 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 you, you, can, you can go one route of saying well I've, I think I've got good reasons for thinking that what I believe is right so things that contradict it must be wrong um, you can get a certain way on, on that um, but it will start perhaps seeming evasive if you ask particular questions on other faiths, or if you're engaging with someone from another faith, we'll come onto this in terms of atheism later, in 
engaging with someone from another spirituality, mm. it will really help your evangelism, your apologetics, and your relationship to understand their spirituality, where they're coming from, and to be able to pose an, an internal critique and say, you know, I, I'm not arguing about whether or not Christianity is true at the moment, but what about this problem for your view of things? You can point to what you think might be problems with mine, but you know I'm free to point to what I think might be problems with yours. You know, have you thought about whether or not Joseph Smith really was a reliable translator of ancient Egyptian? Given what we now know about the Book of Abraham that he supposedly translated from Egyptian, conveniently just just before it became widely known that a French guy in the eighteen whatevers had. had just translated uh, through the uh, what's that stone in the British Rosetta Museum stone. called Rosetta stone. Rosetta stone. Yeah, worked out how to translate ancient Egyptian properly. We've actually recovered the so-called uh, bits of the papyrus of the so-called Book of Abraham, and even Mormon scholars now recognise that what Joseph Smith produced as a translation of the book of Abraham has absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with what the Egyptian is talking about mm. on those scrolls and you know his whole I'm translating it using my magical seer stone kind of etc like yeah. um, so you know you fall into a conversation with well this probably happened in America more than here uh, but your Mormon friend <laughs> about well, why do you believe in the book of Luke? Why do you think that's accurate? It's like, well, why do you believe in the book of Abraham? Mm. You know, um, we, yeah. we all have questions to, to, to address. Yeah. Do we want to take five minutes at this? So just a very brief word, a shorter word, about um, objectively beautiful, good, and true, straight, reasonable. Um, Again, huge areas, but just say some brief things about this. And I think, um, as we'll see later with postmodernism, we're talking about atheism in terms of modernism and postmodernism, uh, the objectively here is is key and biblical. Um, and uh, I I did um, many years ago, many years ago in the last millennia, I did my M. Phil thesis uh, was partly on the objectivity of uh, truth and goodness and beauty in relation to understanding the character of God uh, and famously Anselm talked about God as the, the greatest conceivable being in his theology and I was wanting to talk about God as the, the maximally beautiful being and saying that those ways of talking about God basically boiled down to the same thing but wasn't it more attractive to talk about God as the maximally beautiful being <laughs> rather than just this sort of more sort of abstract greatest conceivable blah 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 um, if you really try to pull out what do you mean by greatness <laughs> greatness in terms of goodness and truth and, and beauty um, and that these values they are, they're all objective and they all relate to each other um, when, I, when I say um you know, uh, truth and knowing truth is a good thing. And if I'm going to say something, if I'm going to say that rainbow 
really is beautiful rather than just I happen to like rainbows which is a subjective way of putting it um, I cashed out a beautiful in, in terms of the, the tradition classical tradition that would say um, something's beautiful if it really is objectively good for you to appreciate certain qualities that it, it actually has you know, um, it really is good independently of what people happen to think and believe so it's objective of qualities that it actually has um, so to say that something you know it is true that it is beautiful is to say it's true that it is good for you to appreciate it so they're all bound together that's the philosophy uh, over with um, but notice when Paul for example in Philippians is saying uh, brothers and sisters whatever is true not what hap you happen to think is true uh, whatever is noble is right is pure uh, whatever is lovely whatever is admirable and again it's not whatever you happen to admire things aren't admirable because you admire them uh, we should admire things because they are admirable <laughs> their being admirable is to do with them not to do with us <laughs> right um, so Paul talks about these values of I've put them into these categories of, of good beauty and true in a very sort of objective, out there kind of a way, rather than a sort of postmodern, different strokes for different folks, depends on what you feel, what your society believes, kind of a way. Yeah. So that's both the, the classical, philosophical way of addressing them and the, the biblical way of addressing them. Uh, here's a nice quote from the more modern philosopher John Cottingham, Christian philosopher talks about these three truth, goodness, beauty they're, they're, classically they're called the transcendental values, and this has nothing to do with transcendental meditation sort of yoga and stuff, but they're, they, they're values that transcend the categories between different subjects in a university and they apply to all the different subjects, we, we judge things in the, all these different subjects against these common standards, so truth should matter to a biologist and to a historian and to an actor okay now the actor's pretending to be someone but they should be interested in the you know the emotional truth of the performance for example yeah. so truth matters to the humanities and to the sciences and so on uh, likewise with goodness, likewise with, with beauty. Artists are interested in beauty, but so so are cosmologists and pure mathematicians. Like, oh, that's a really beautiful equation, will say the mathematician. And the rest of us will go, what, it's a few squiggles and a bit of pet, what? <laughs> they know, well, I'm not talking about the squiggles, I'm talking about the thing that the scribbles are representing. You know, that relationship there, the Pythagorean kind of and then the artist will go, oh yeah, you mean the Pythagorean spiral with the relationship and the proportions between the things is... Fibonacci. It, that's it, thank you, Fibonacci. <laughs> uh, or the way in which, you know, Leonardo has arranged the figures in this painting in, 
according with a triangle, this and these different geometrical, and it's like, oh, actually, art and math and science and things aren't all that far apart, you know, uh, in these underlying values, yeah? <coughs> so John Cottingham, uh, again, getting at what unifies these concepts together. Uh, it says, truth, beauty, and goodness carry with them a sense of requirement or demand. The true is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. Back to St. Paul. Uh, and the good is that which is worthy of choice. Of committing yourself to it. So this is sort of, it's worthy of your belief, your choice, your commitment. You can see how this relates to spirituality. The spirituality is intended to be a way of life about relating to things that is meant to be a virtuous way of relating to things. Um, then to ask the question, you know, are the things that I'm believing and doing and committing to because of my spirituality, are they worthy of commitment? Are they more worthy of commitment than the alternatives on offer in the marketplace, as it were? <laughs> Is the, the kind of key question about spirituality. What spirituality is worthy of my commitment and belief and uh, energies and so on. Uh, and so having gone through those sort of three elements, we get this nice three by three chart. Hooray! <laughs> da, 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 where we have the spirituality of your head and your hearts and your hands. A spirituality is, is known or communicated through uh, three elements of classical rhetoric. So the logos relating to the head, the pathos to the heart, the ethos to the, the doing, the hands. And these things all need to be judged against these independent transcendent standards of truth being communicated by rationality to the head, of beauty, uh, of the heart accessing beauty through pathos, uh, of the, the goodness of the character, of the actions, of the habits of life. Uh, that characterises spirituality and so on. Uh, and so uh, the aim, the, the idea is that you know, spirituality draws these things uh, together and makes you a more whole person, more holy, what you are, in Christian terms, intended to be as you, by God, as you put on Christ. Uh, you know, we put on Christ as we have the mind of Christ. Uh, we develop the fruit, in terms of character, the fruit of the spirit, mm. and so on. All of these sort of phrases are different ways of relating to how are we coming more to, to embody the life of God and his kingdom? How are we becoming more like the most beautiful possible being? And the relationships, his, you know, God's spirituality, if you like. Um, God in and of himself, again, the Trinitarian theology. Uh, God is not a person, but 
three persons in one personal being. So God includes within analogy his fullness relationship. That means that God can uh, not depend upon something outside of himself or have to create in order to exhibit relationship or the value of love for example um, if you think about love you know, a little bit trinitarian theology for you here's an argument victor st hugo's argument for the trinity you can you can argue it from revelation that's one way here's a philosophical way of doing it so if if god was only one person uh, in order to be you know, the greatest possible being, to be not dependent upon creation and so on. Um, but he was only one person. He could, he could love himself, but that's the only kind of love that he could exhibit without having to create something else, and therefore that would make him dependent upon something outside of himself. But if God has two people, persons within God's self, God can not only love, have self-love, but can have love for another of other love loving the other within God's self that's the second kind of loving yeah? mm. if you add a third person within God God can exhibit the great quality of loving with a loved other so loving oneself loving another loving with another that's a different kind of loving let us together come on you know love and as you see now the sort of relationship between the idea of family and so on that that is what what that's a third qualitatively sort of distinct kind of loving if add a fourth person what, what does that get you well just another example of loving with Add a fifth, what, what, well, another example. And there's no maximum number of people that you could have. You could always add another one. So it's, it's only by having three, and no less and no more than three, that allows God to exhibit all of the different kinds of loving relationship, and therefore to be the maximally beautiful <laughs> being in a way that he wouldn't be if he had fewer persons and would derive no benefit from having more people in terms of qualitatively different distinct kinds of love and since by God we mean the most beautiful possible being ergo God must be a Trinitarian being um, therefore uh, Islam is the Islamic idea of God for example must be wrong <laughs> strict monotheism mm. uh, is at odds with the notion that you mean by God you know, the greatest possible being so <coughs> um, persuasively advocating Christian spirituality uh, good, beautiful, true, reasonable etc um, enabling, helping people to be persuaded that a Christ-centered spirituality is a beautiful, good, and reasonable commitment to make. Can I ask a question? Yeah. You know, you talk about the Trinity, mm. self-sustaining, loving another, loving with. Mm. How does 
how can we how can you use that analogy and put it into an apologetic approach to something? Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Um, where do we where do we fit in that? As followers of God. Really separate from the idea. Well, part, part of it is to do with the the, the attractiveness of God mm. and the greatness of God, and mm. uh, say, uh, you know, the, 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 I think the most attractive idea of God, definition of God, is of this maximally great, maximally beautiful being, yeah. and love is a beautiful thing, and only a trinitarian kind of God allows him to be maximally beautiful as in, in terms of love as it were um, in a way that you know uh, say the muslim strictly monotheistic god can't be so if you're asking the question you know which concept of god is the most attractive as long as it's you know rationally coherent you'd say well surely that would be the christian one um, so there's an apologetic element uh, to that. Uh, and then also, as I was saying, in, in terms of uh, looking at humanity created in the image of God, you might argue, some of them, that there's a sort of a, a pale an analogical reflection of God's character in his creation of human beings yeah. in his image. And it's not just that you know, each individualistic human being is, made, is an image of God, but that humanity and something about the the, inter, the fundamental relationships within humanity mirror that, and of course that brings you to 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 family, to marriage, to one man, one woman, open to the possibility of of uh, loving together something that we're intimately bound up produced from the love between them. We're getting to an analogies here because, because, but, uh, so, you know, the, the creedal language of the Nicene Creed starts talking about uh, that you have God the Father and the Son who, who is begotten by the Father. Uh, it doesn't come into being in, in, at a particular time. It's not a creature but he's kind of rooted in the Father and who together, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. There was a whole church schism between the, the Orthodox, even Orthodox and the Western churches over that, the Philippi calls over, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son? As the Western church ended up defining it in the Nicene Creed or not? Um, I think certainly the Nicene way of cashing out is, is a useful useful philosophically because it allows you to make distinctions like the distinctions between the persons of the trinity are in terms of their internal kind of relationships to one another causally speaking without any any of the persons being a creature or, or, or a creation you know um, so uh, you, you might you might argue i have a paper on the trinity on be thinking if you want to follow this up one might argue that you could translate being begotten as being eternally caused by the Father and proceeding as being eternally caused by the Father and the Son together. Mm. Yeah. And that's that's part of the loving with mm. 
the, the you know the loving loving with relationships being kind of cashed out in terms of the internal causal relationships between the members of the Trinity. Yeah. Because it's really interesting like listening to it. If I was somebody listening to it as a non Christian, I'd be like, yeah, like, of course that's attractive, but like, where do I fit in that sort of thing? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, that sounds amazing, yeah, that's attractive. But what's that with what's it, what's up, what's that going to do with me? Yeah. Sort of so I yeah, we take this back through to how rich the concept because how rich the concept of God is, how rich the concept of being made in the image of God is. Mm. And what that might imply in terms of the value of love, relationships, yeah. family, um, that we're not just, you know, uh, atomic individuals, yeah. that we find our full personhood in relationship, mm. and that we're designed for that because God within himself has persons who, who are defined by their relationships to one another, yeah. eternally speaking, yeah. and, and because God made us, you know, it's not not too surprising that we might find that that's true about us as well. So, so we get away from this sort of extreme individualistic sort of Western lone wolf yeah, kind of exactly. consumer society kind of picture of the individual as your you are interchangeable cog within the machine of society kind of mm. etc. A way of critiquing individualism. Yeah. Um, and so on. So there, all sorts of things can flow out of that in terms of sociology and yeah. ethics and yeah. 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 Go ahead. Uh, I didn't know this has just came up on the, the, the provided screensaver. Uh, yeah. Uh, we've got that one up there. Should we see if there are any questions? About yes, let, let, let's do before we move on to this other. Never can grab some coffee. Yeah. Mm. And, I, and I appreciate, I, I obviously wasn't in any of your DIY sessions leading up to the last one I was obviously in. That looked very different to this one. Um, <coughs> but in terms of level of content, I am just guessing this is a bit more content rich than some other sessions that we've had so far or not? I mean, or is it yes, something that you're quite used to? Okay. Yeah, it's all different. Yeah, okay. so, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, it was just <laughs> lovely. He's taking that to my first days at school. Same. Yeah. <laughs> ah. Putting up my head around it. Yeah. A-level. Yeah. Okay. Um, That's a good background to have there. That's good. Yeah. In a completely open place where we know we are not individually perfect and yeah. all knowing. Questions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know. I find I just find the project extremely hard to get my head around. Or like yeah. Or like philosophy. Like I mean I did it for philosophy for A level. Yeah. Like, I did find it helpful when I was in a time to like learn that. But looking back now, because I can use it a bit now to like understand things better. Mm-hmm. But generally, it takes me a long time to even take it in. So, 
And as I say, I'm, I'm not pushing an agenda that kind of says, uh, I want all Christians to go and get a PhD in philosophy and ancient history and archaeology and all of these other subjects that apologetics is kind of interested in because mm. they, they touch upon the Logos element of, of spirituality or whatever. But, but to recognise that you want to love the rationality of yourself and your non-Christian neighbour and as Pete says, you know, if someone asks you a question, try and gently and reasonably engage with that um, and make that a useful sort of launch point for your own spiritual development as well. Um, you know. If somebody came up to you and you were leading a session on apologetics and said, Peter, I've looked, I've seen, I don't think there's ever going to be enough proof in me to believe in God. What would you say to that person? Coming from a, yeah. coming from um, a place of faith, <coughs> what would you say to the kind of action for that person? There's a couple of different ways. So, one technique you really learn in, in philosophy, which is useful in apologetics as well, is to question the question. The, the people make assumptions when they arrive at, at situations, uh, and sometimes it's really useful to help people to notice those assumptions and to explore them. Um, so, if someone is saying, you know, I, I've had a look and I don't think there's a, a you know, good enough reason to believe in God. Well, first of all, they're, they're kind of assuming that in order for them to be reasonable in believing that there's in God, um, they've got to have some kind of argument for believing in God. And also that what re what's really crucial here is that they believe something, they believe that there is a God, before they put faith in God and I think both of those assumptions are things that you can usefully question and discuss um, I had a debate at uh, Trondheim University last year uh, with a agnostic Norwegian philosopher and it was a very fascinating debate because when I came on and, and I gave my usual, well, you know, here are five reasons for believing in God kind of shtick. Uh, and his position as an agnostic philosopher was these arguments, I don't think they're strong enough to convince me that there's a God. Uh, I, I also don't think there are arguments strong enough to convince me that there isn't a God. I hope that there is a God and I try and live my life as if there is a God. Okay. That's, now that's very different from the agnostic who says, I, I don't think you know, there's not, I'm not convinced one way or the other, so I'm just going to live as if there's no God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, well, do you, why, why do you flip that way rather than the other way? Because that, that's about making, you know, am I going to live making a commitment to God if he is there, mm. although he might not be, or am I going to live not making that commitment, even though he might be there. I don't, you know, gosh. Why, why are these different? There's a whole kind of area. So, the, in the debate, I was, you know, in, in trying to encourage, endorse this and say, yeah, I, I think 
I know my, my opponent is, is, is right in a sense that you can start with like hoping that there's a God searching for God reaching out for God um, uh, maybe down the line you'll come to an experience of God through that search or become convinced that there are good reasons for believing but you have to have a good reason for believing before you start exercising faith and trust hope allegiance to God is that necessarily the case particularly if you haven't got you know really good reasons for thinking there isn't a God so on so you can get into a whole sort of fruitful area of conversation that also touches on you know well why do you go this way or that way <laughs> yeah. uh, Particularly if it's self-admittedly not about you know what what the evidence shows, as it were, <laughs> um, without even getting into well, I you know I think I've got better arguments than you. Let me try and convince you. You must not have come across the right textbook yet. <laughs> Which is the other way to go, of course. So we'd be like, well, you know, what arguments have you heard? I, you know, how many how many arguments for God do you know of? Because mm. I know of at least a couple of dozen. Mm. Yeah. But if you've, you know, you meet someone, even if you've read someone who's like, they're quite interested in the God debate, and they've read Richard Dawkins' book, you know, and he, he's got a chapter in there on the arguments for God, and so they know about three or four or five arguments for God and how stupid they are, because yeah. Richard Dawkins doesn't understand any of them. But it's like, well, let's just assume that you're right, and Richard Dawkins, and some of the, you know, his atheist reviewers have said, has completely eviscerated those arguments for God. Yeah. What about the other 15? Mm. <laughs> Do you think it's almost as though, like, if somebody's, like, explored the seeds and they've come, they've come to, like, a cliff edge, and I think it's, like, what Kirkwell says, I think mm. that leap of faith. Do you think that is, for somebody who hasn't experienced God before, mm. and saying, I don't know what the Holy Spirit feels like, I don't know what God looks like, you know, yeah. feels like, is that the rational yeah. way of saying, okay, if you've rationally thought about all these arguments, Seek to it, then actually, you have to take that leap of faith. <coughs> well, I don't think you're, you're not asking to. I don't think the Bible asks people to make any leap of bad faith, mm. uh, as it were. We're not, we're not asking people to just, you know, well, don't, you know, ignore your reason and just screw up your courage and take a leap of faith kind of thing and ignore rationality. But I, I'd go back with um, Pascal. Blaise Pascal, the French um, 17th century writer, is very useful here. Uh, I think in kind of saying, if your reason's not against it, you know, it, there are sort of pragmatic reasons, reasons of attractiveness and so on, it might be worth your while seeking at least after God. You know, should, is this something you should be apathetic about? Or are there reasons, at least, to be to be open to, to maybe hope that Christianity is true? He, he said, you know, um, "Men fear that religion may be true. The first thing to do is to, is to help, you know, help them to, to hope that it might be true, and then show them that it's true, so that their their, their, their worldly passions don't get in the way of that process or what have you." Again, treating people holistically. Um, yeah, so, um, back to those quotes we had at the beginning about what got, 
God is interested in people's relationship with him and sincerely reaching out to him and so on Hebrews um, those who would search uh, come to God must must and we have terrible translations must faith uh, in God must sort of hope or entrust themselves to God and, and trust that he welcomes those who, who search for him it, it's obviously it can't be about in order to come to God you've got to believe that God's there and that he welcomes people who because obviously you can you can search for something even if you're not sure that it's there but it's like saying in order to to go after the buried treasure on the island you have to kind of take practical steps to go in search of the, the treasure uh, in the belief that you might possibly find it if it's there otherwise you just wouldn't bother but <laughs> yeah um, so I, I think again God's not primarily interested in getting us to believe certain things um, but in getting us to have the opportunity to have a relationship with him and you know, my position on that is basically everyone will in some way shape or form at some time rather have an opportunity to reject a relationship with God God, God doesn't uh, you know, God doesn't send people to hell for just being ignorant mm. basically it's not ignorance it, that's the thing it's whether or not one has faith yeah. uh, will, you, will you give your allegiance to Christ or will you reject giving your Christ mm. giving your allegiance to him yeah. uh, those parables about Christ in the last day so, mm. yeah. Yeah, and Peter also, um, I think you mentioned something really interesting about how you've got to have a fundamental like sea change. Mm. I think with people's attitudes and assumptions, and if those are so firmly rooted, it's almost impossible to even get them to consider something else in terms of, I think, so people I know often uh, revolve around the logos, and it's all about the logos. Um, so what would be the best sort of rational way of getting them to open up and just be a bit more yeah. sensible into the conversation? Yeah. Yeah, conversation. It, it may actually be the best way of opening them up to those rational conversations is through the other elements of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Because they're, they're connected together, because there isn't really this dichotomy between yeah. goodness and beauty and truth. Yeah. Uh, you can often sort of, you know, open someone up to a discussion about what's true through, let's watch this film together. <laughs> that really raises, in a relatable way, this particular issue that connects to some element of truth that I want to talk about, or whatever. Okay. Or um, through that sort of cultural sort of engagement and apologetic as, as we'll see um, the personal relationship and so on and also through you, you know that internal critique of, of non-Christian spiritualities and worldviews um, helping people to become dissatisfied with the spirituality they already have okay. so, and everyone has a spirituality yeah and if and Francis Schaeffer would, would 
talk about, you know, if Christianity is true, then these other spiritualities will fail to measure up somewhere. Yeah. And you're, you're trying to sort of lovingly put pressure on some point of internal inconsistency or lack of correspondence with truth or something. Yeah. In, so people become dissatisfied with what they have as a way of motivating them to look for something better. Mm-hmm. And so maybe a long time down the, lo- the road before you're talking about, have you considered Jesus? You know, <laughs> First of all, it may be, you, know, you, you think you're a happy secular humanist, but have you thought about <laughs> uh, X, Y, or Z? Or how does that make you, you know, feel about this? And can you live consistently with that? Uh, and if not, you know, does that point to some sort of problem? Uh, that maybe Christianity has a solution to. That's <laughs> Later, later thing, yeah. Yeah, and what about, um, so you talked about, it was interesting about things that are objectively beautiful, good, and true, and that, like, demands a, what if people's view of God or what like, people I've spoken to is not objectively beautiful, good, and true, it's mm. actually often influenced by their view of the church, their view of religion, like, historically, mm. um, but it's, it's of um, naturally a negative view of, a view of God, and mm. therefore either just dis- disbelief or not like the idea, idea of what they yeah well yeah you went somewhere different than I thought you were going to with that okay. because they they are that critique is based upon the assumption that there's objective goodness and truth and beauty and that Christianity does not exhibit those virtues uh, rather than a rejection of those virtues yeah I think so so there are, there are some people who at least claim to reject those virtues. That's an entirely different issue than those who accept them, but can't think, see it. but think, yeah, think that can't see that Christianity matches up. I think that gives you a good reason not to be a Christian. You know, yeah. um, those are two different uh, problems. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's probably talking about the latter. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I think the the major one there is that the the onus is on us ourselves and our communities to be good advertisements for Christianity <coughs> <laughs> to embody. Yeah, it's about the character that you've got. Yeah, yeah, the ethos, uh, and to say, yeah. I'm glad that you really passionately care about goodness and recognise the evils of child abuse that have been committed by so many Christian ministers. And I am just as appalled as you, and Jesus would have been as well. Look what he said here about children and, you know, don't put... uh, burdens on the little ones and so on. Uh, Jesus called out religious hypocrisy, you know, time and time again. Uh, and and you're right, a lot of religious people, including Christian people, are hypocrites. In a, in a sense, because none of us are perfect, we're all a bit hypocritical. Mm. I know I'm a bit hypocritical. Mm. I'm trying to get less hypocritical 
through my relationship with Jesus, mm. uh, you know. But I don't claim to be perfect. Mm. Actually, I claim to be a sinner who's forgiven by blah blah blah. <laughs> you get into the, you know. Uh, so it's like affirm what you can affirm mm. and say, yeah, you're absolutely right to be That's appalled. Right. Yeah, yeah, to be appalled by this. Mm. But then try and turn that into how that their recognition of that value does actually tie in with what is true and good and beautiful yeah. about Christianity. Yeah. And to say, yeah, those people who are doing that, they're not following Christ mm-hmm. as much as they're doing that. So, yeah. Do we have any more questions? Yeah, we'll grab some coffee. I've, I've got one, but it's quite a general one, so you can probably take from your perspective. I know you've mentioned about spiritual warfare, mm. but what what is the relationship like between the Holy Spirit and apologetics? Because yeah. for some people, who are apologetics, have their have a very narrow-minded view of the Holy Spirit and its relevance today in the church and its you know impact on people's lives. <coughs> yeah, and of course there are a range of views on these sure. issues and uh, some contentiousness amongst the different views on that. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, apologetics is certainly compatible with quite a different range of views mm. on that. I don't think it being passionate about apologetics ties you into a particular narrow view sure. uh, and that's not what on that kind of charismatic yeah. spectrum, as, as yeah, it were. Um, or even upon the sort of contentious uh, Calvinist versus Arminian debates about salvation and free will and all of those kind of things. It's yeah. kind of like... I know, what, what's, what's the phrase? Um, uh, uh, argue with people like an Arminian, but don't worry about it, like Calvinist or something. Do you guys know the yeah. What's the. Calvinist <coughs> Do you want to quickly explain? Oh, okay. They're, they're sort of. Um, who, who ends up going to heaven? Uh, Calvin says uh, God chooses whether or not people are going to become Christians and causes them to become Christians and there are some people who don't become Christians and that's because God doesn't cause, cause them to become Christians <coughs> and Armenia says no it's about whether or not people choose, choose to exercise faith in Christ God offers salvation to everyone and people choose yeah. and the Calvinists say well do you mean you're sort of earning your way into heaven by, by your own merits and the Armenian says no I, d- I don't mean that I'm earning my way but I'm receiving the free gift of salvation by choosing to receive it and if I reject it God doesn't doesn't force it sure. uh, on us and the Calvinist says well are you saying you you know what about the sovereignty of God and the Armenian says, well, what do you mean by the sovereignty of God? Not that, surely that God causes every particular thing in accordance with his will, because then you'd be saying, yeah. and so the conversation goes, right? But that's the kind of, this uh, discussion between uh, free will and salvation and faith and sovereignty and, and so on, and those uh, complex theological issues there. Um, <coughs> And it can, at the extreme, and I've been in, in churches where it's come to this, that the Calvinism can get to a point where you kind of say, well, the reason that people become Christians is because God makes them Christians, so we don't need to bother doing anything because people are going to be Christians or not 
depending upon what God chooses. Yeah. So let's just sit here on our little holy huddle and not bother doing any evangelism or arguing anything or what what have you um, but actually practically speaking it doesn't come to that with many Calvinists because they recognise that it, the scriptural commands, you know, reading 1 Peter 3.15 the example of Paul, the example of Jesus and so on uh, is that we give reasons for our belief and so on and they will say that you know the Holy Spirit uses <laughs> us to evangelise and uses our arguments in converting people and so on and the Armenian and the Calvinist will have slightly different views of what it means that God uses our arguments in converting people but actually practically speaking we both agree that we ought to go out and evangelise and give the best arguments that we can so what are we arguing about let's get on and do it (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 